Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write through thought-provoking books. If everyone can please make sure you're muted, that would be most appreciated. Please allow me to introduce our two sponsors. Matt Butler, President and CEO of Compass Clever Solutions. Matt, could you just tell us a little bit about your company? Sure, thanks, Mark, and good afternoon, everyone. Most of us are visual learners, and that's why YouTube searches for how-to videos have grown 70% year over year, because learning how to fix things is much easier if you can see them. That's why we created our proprietary visual imaging process, to help you see for the first time how your current processes are causing your problems, which makes them much easier to solve. We work with your internal subject matter experts, helping them to clearly see how to improve efficiency, increase sales, and most importantly, increase profits. We're so confident in our process that we're always willing to take compensation as a percentage of your savings and increase profits. So if you want to reduce organizational stress and increase your competitive position, give us a call. Thank you. Matt, thank you very much. Our other sponsor today is John Custer, a partner of Custer & Custer. John? Thank you, Mark. I'm John Custer III, partner of Custer & Custer, a family-owned law firm outside Philadelphia. We work with entrepreneurs and family-owned businesses that range in size from startup to lower middle market. Custer & Custer provides services ranging from incorporation, employment and buy-sell agreements, to vendor contracts, to buying and selling businesses. There's no cost to tell us about your needs, and depending on the project, we can quote you a flat rate. Please feel free to contact us with any question you might have at custerandcuster.com. Thank you very much, John. And now, uh, welcome to our guest, Jeff Dwyer. Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you today. Jeff, could you give the audience a little bit more about your background? I saw Jeff was on here. Jeff, we have to have you unmute. Looks like he's on a call. I guess we're waiting for Jeff to finish his call. Mark, we're all waiting for Jeff. Matt, can you put your uh, your website contact information uh, in the chat, please? Uh, my contact information? Uh, Matt's with the sponsor, Matt Butler. Sure, Mark will send it afterwards with the uh, copy of the video. Great, thank you. So we're... Been unstable, can you hear me? Oh yeah, we hear you great. Can you can you hear me on my phone now? I can. We can hear you both ways. All right, I'll you unmute. Choose. You. Okay, you're still muted. All right, I've unmuted now. Does that work? Yep, we're good. Sorry about that. I was trying to dial in by the phone because uh, sometimes I have an unstable computer, but I think you've got me now. Wonderful. Jeff, uh, thanks for coming on today. Can you give the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. I started my career in business uh, after an MBA at Bain & Company. I was a management consultant and manager there for a few years. Went back, got my PhD in strategy at UCLA, then went to the Wharton School, uh, professor 
at Wharton uh, full-time for seven years and then uh, moved to a part-time position there and came to BYU. Um, and I've been a professor of strategy at BYU since about 2000. Thank you so much. So tell us, why did you write this book and what is Innovation Capital? So the reason we wrote this book is that we, um, and when I say we, I'd worked with Clayton Christensen at Harvard and, and Hal Gregerson, um, trying to understand how do people get creative ideas for new businesses and new products. And after we wrote that book, we had a framework for how do you generate ideas. And people would come to us and say, hey, I think we've got a really good idea. Should I, should I do this? And then we realized, well, you need a way to test and validate whether that idea might work in the marketplace. And so then they would go and they would use some sort of lean startup design thinking techniques that we described in the Innovator's Method, a follow-up book. So the first book was Innovator's DNA. Then Innovator's Method described, here are the steps you take to test and validate an idea. Then they'd come back and they say, I think we've tested and validated it, but I can't seem to get the resources to do this idea. I can't get people to join my team. I can't get the financial resources. So how do I do that? And that's really what led to the idea around innovation capital, because what we learned as we started to study leaders of successful innovative companies is that they were really good at bringing resources to be able to do new things, innovative new ideas, and that creativity was just not enough. It's not enough to come up with a good idea. You also then have to overcome the risks that people perceive of supporting that idea to bring those resources in order to do something that's really new. And as we studied people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Indra Nooyi, the CEO of PepsiCo, we saw that a lot of these really good leaders of innovation, it wasn't that they were just creative, they did have creative uh, chops, but more importantly, they really understood how to bring uh, resources to their ideas. And that required what we called innovation capital. So what's the profile of a great innovative leader? So a great innovative leader tends to um, have sort of three uh, sort of skill sets um, or areas of competence. The first really is around uh, sort of creativity and recognizing opportunity. So these folks, um, they are explorers, they're adventurers, they read widely, they learn, but they really are good at um, sort of seeing opportunity and figuring out how to overcome sort of the problems that get in your way to pursuing opportunity. The second, though, is that they are often very good at building social networks with people who have resources. Um, and these could be financial resources or they could be intellectual resources, but uh, they are usually very good at connecting with others to draw people to their team. And then the third thing that they're really good at doing is they're really good at building a personal reputation and track record as someone who uh, is innovative and, and is good at trying new things. They're willing to try new things in their companies. They've found little uh, new initiatives, whether it's uh, a megatrends group at PepsiCo, which is one of the things that um, Indra Nooyi did, the CEO at, at, at Pepsi, 
to sort of get seen and known, or it's, it's launching a, a new company the way sort of Bezos did with Amazon. But they're good at building their um, reputation as being someone who can do innovative things. So basically, creativity, problem recognition, good at that, connecting with people, good at that, and last, building that reputation for innovation. So in your book, you talked about uh, Edison versus te Tesla, and those were the two kind of beginning real innovators of the last century. So why was Edison became a mogul and Tesla didn't? Yeah, so we noticed that uh, when we studied the lives of Edison and Tesla, there was an interesting contrast. Edison, uh, you know, he was someone who was um, good at sort of the creativity side, and so was Nikolai Tesla. And in fact, Nikola Tesla was often viewed as being more of a creative genius in many ways than Edison, and his ideas have actually outlasted most of Edison's. Where they differed, though, was in the social skills part. Um, Edison networked broadly with people in the inventor community, and he was able to hire and bring people to really the first R&D lab at Menlo Park to be able to work on uh, you know, the, the ideas that he had and the ideas that they generated. So he was really good at networking, and he was also really good at um, networking with financiers like J.P. Morgan. Um, in fact, uh, J.P. Morgan put up money for Edison Electric and then his was one of the first homes in New York City that got wired with electricity, um, not surprisingly. But he knew Morgan, he knew the Vanderbilts. So he was actually much better at networking with others than Nikola Tesla, who was viewed as really didn't have very strong uh, skills uh, networking, interacting with others. Then the other thing that, that uh, um, Edison really did well was when he got a new idea, he was terrific at promoting this idea. So for example, when they, you know, they came, they hit upon the technology for the phonograph. And the phonograph was like this first machine that could repeat sound. Literally, he reports the next day he took it down to Scientific American, the main publication of that time to get out new ideas. He took it into the editor's office. He said, you gotta hear this. Everybody in this room needs to hear this. And he recited Mary Had a Little Lamb on the phonograph and got everybody interested. And within the week, they had written a story about the phonograph. Um, so he did a lot of things around sort of self-promotion that people don't know about. He, was, he reportedly put like soot on his face. Um, and he did that um, to, uh, b before uh, We lost. Uh, Jeff for a second. Hopefully he'll be back with us. Do you have me now? Yes. Are we back? Yes. Sorry. So, um, so we, uh, so what we learned was that you actually have to think about sort of marketing and promotion and building your reputation. And Edison would do things uh, to really get the word out. He'd make a, a list of the top 10 uses for a new invention that he had, and he would get that out to the media. He would do uh, interviews with reporters. 
um, and, and was very frequently interviewed and reportedly like wiped soot on his face and came in from the lab looking like he'd just been working on something to give that impression. So creativity is really not enough. It really requires also the ability to connect with others with resources to persuade them to join your team and also to think carefully about how you build a reputation as an innovative leader. I also think with Tesla, and I read both biographies on both of them, that uh, Edison had a, a better business sense and was more commercially focused, and Tesla wasn't. And I think that helped sell him to the Vanderbilts and the JP Morgans and so forth. Same with George Westinghouse. Uh, Tesla was a brilliant exactly. mind, but really didn't focus on the commercialization part. So one of the things I felt was interesting in your book was you had a list of the top 25 innovative leaders and only one of them was a woman. And I'm, I'm wondering about, yeah. uh, we start to see more women in, on that kind of list going in the future and why weren't there more women? So our list was taken from CEOs that were on our list of the Forbes most innovative companies. So these are basically largely Fortune 500 companies where um, only about two to 3% of the CEOs are women. So in, in that sense, you have to realize this is um, a, a list pulled from large companies. And we were looking at whether they had built a reputation for innovation, whether they had built a company that had a high innovation premium so part of the issue, Mark, is that you're starting with a population where only about 2 to 3% of the CEOs are women. And so then you only have one out of the top 25, because really you only have about two or three out of every 100 companies that are women. So it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of women innovators out there and good women innovative leaders. But at this point, we still don't have a lot of uh, women CEOs leading large companies. So let's talk about skill sets. You wrote about networking. There are five types of people an innovator should focus on. Who are they and why? So um, there are, uh, you know, there are, there are certain folks you really want to get to know if you want to build your innovation capital. The first is you want to find other people who are idea people. So these are um, entrepreneurs, they're inventive, but they're people that you really um, uh, can uh, kind of riff with and generate ideas with, and there may be people you'd want to bring on a team. So you really want people who are sort of your idea people. The second type of person you want is you want to have your, um, you, you know, people who have financial resources, not surprisingly, um, because with any new important venture, whether it's, their, whether they're, an angel or a VC or a bank or whether they're your boss, um, you know, someone's got to bring financial resources to your projects. So you want to be networking with those with financial resources. A third type is you want to, you want to connect with corporate leaders. Um, and corporate leaders, again, could be your own company, but um, corporate leaders tend to have access to resources of various types. Um, so you want to, you want to connect with those, folks as well. And then there are some people that are just influencers. Um, they're people that, um, for whatever reason, they're well known. Um, you know, one of the, the um, 
persons we interviewed was a guy named David Bradford. And he said, you know, I networked and got to know Steve Young, the football player, uh, it, it, you know, at the 49ers at the time. And he was able to help actually recruit someone to his team by sending him a football. Um, he, uh, he connected with Larry King um, and was able to um, get some help from Larry King on a project that he was doing. So sometimes you want someone who's just um, an influencer visible. And then last, you often want to go with your customers. You want to make sure that, especially leaders of customers, um, those are important or potential customers or people you want to target as folks you want to network with. with. So those are the five groups. So how important is it uh, to uh, un quote unquote be an insider? Uh, how, do you know, how do you become one? Some of the people on your list uh, went to prestigious schools like Harvard and Wharton, but many did not. Those who did go to prestigious schools weren't born to wealth or, or, or how, the, did they, how did they make those connections? So it's, it's interesting. Um, one of the questions people ask is, well, what if I didn't go to a prestigious school? Because that's one of the ways I build my reputation as someone who um, is, um, is perhaps, you know, a desirable person to have on a team or someone that, you know, others may bring resources to. One of the things that we've seen some people do is they will um, basically uh, work for free, volunteer to be an intern um, or work at a center at a prestigious university. And even though they don't get paid, they can actually put that on their resume that they may have worked, you know, with a, a center or a research center or something um, at a, a, a more prestigious university. Um, I know I had someone do this with me at Wharton and at BYU. Um, I've also had people do this at companies where they will try to uh, see if they can uh, do a, a summer internship and work for free for you know, a company that is well known for innovation. Um, like a, you know, a, a Google or a Facebook or so on. And anything you can do to try and attach yourself to a prestigious university or organization or person, then you can borrow from that reputation as we talk about it as reputation borrowing. Um, that will help you. So that's one way to try and, and build your resume, even if you don't go to a prestigious university or get hired necessarily at, a, I have uh, to, at, at a, I, an innovative I have to say I experienced exactly that. I uh, taught 10 years for the Wharton School. I, like John Chambers, went to West Virginia University. It's not exactly going to Wharton or Harvard. But once I got into Wharton, more people wanted to hire me to do things. And, and prior to that, I worked with uh, well-known CEOs when I started the Eastern Technology Council here. But all of those gave me like a halo effect. And, and still to this day, the fact that I was 10 years at Wharton has been a huge benefit uh, to me in everything that I do. So I can vouch for that. Uh, you wrote about mastering persuasion. Is that exactly. a common element among innovators? How do you develop that skill? So, um, yeah, persuasion is, there have been you know, books written about persuasion. Uh, we don't spend uh, a lot of time on it, but we do spend a little bit of time in terms of your personal skill set. Obviously, Steve Jobs is, is kind of the person that those of us who are a little older remember as someone who could uh, persuade others to support his ideas. 
Um, he was, you know, they talked about him having this reality distortion field. But um, I think uh, what we, uh, what persuades people? Well, one, what persuades people is if they think other people support you as well, if you've persuaded other people to support you. So it's the social networking. And if you have any sort of a track record then uh, for innovation, then that makes a difference as well. But one of the things we learned about these folks, that, that a technique they used was storytelling. And they could tell a good story about why something was an, an important problem to solve and why you should want to be a part of it. And they would try and connect with you at an emotional level as to why what they're doing is important for the world. And they used this storytelling as a way to really get others, persuade others to, to join them. So whether it was Indra Nooyi, uh, the, the woman CEO at PepsiCo, talking to PepsiCo as a company about why they needed to care about sustainability in terms of water and how this would benefit the company and the world. And she would talk about how as a young girl, they had limited water in their city because it was used by the large companies. And she said, my mother got up every morning at four o'clock to turn on the spigot to see if any water came out. And it would come out some days and not others. And we'd fill it with pots where we could. And then it ran out. And then we'd use that for our water for the week to drink, to wash our clothes. We didn't have water. And she would tell this really impactful story about why this is so important for us. And I think, you know, Elon Musk does the same thing about Tesla with uh, electric cars. It's about, you know, saving the world in terms of carbon emissions and the environment. And, uh, and SpaceX is about potentially saving humanity by being able to set up a colony on Mars. So there's a way of persuading through storytelling that I think a lot of these folks use quite effectively. So you had mentioned Steve Jobs in beginning of this, and you talked about his distortion field. Explain the distortion field, and how do you create such a field uh, that other brilliant people would want to follow you? So what Jobs was really good at, um, and actually it, it's, it's not really as explicit in uh, what's written about him, um, so the, the fact that he could identify an opportunity and he could make others believe that you could get there even when it seemed impossible. And it's not written about, but people who are good at this are really good at identifying what are the primary constraints to, to reaching our goal and how are we going to get there? Elon Musk actually is quite good at this as well. Um, and he, you know, he refers to it about as, as sort of getting down to the physics of problem solving, like what's truly possible and what's not possible from a physics level and how do we overcome the constraints. But Jobs could paint a picture of what was possible with his stories, and then he would help the teams figure out what are the constraints and the barriers, and then help them and push them to figure out how do we get around that barrier so that we actually can realize that opportunity. And when people have someone, hear someone with that much passion and that much belief that they believe it's possible and that uh, there's a way to get around the barriers, it tends to convince others to want to be part of it and that it's possible. I thought what was interesting in your book is uh, people who are very forward thinking. All of these guys that you just uh, listed are forward thinking um, founders of companies. 
So how, how does someone become a forward thinker and can it be learned? Is it you're born with it or can you learn to be one? So um, I think some people are much more natural at forward thinking. Uh, so I think some of it is a natural ability. One of the interesting things we learned about a lot of the leaders, innovative leaders we studied, is that many of them actually loved sci-fi. So they would often, they, they like to, to look into the future sort of in terms of that was their orientation. Uh, they like to, to read, you know, Bezos and Musk certainly fit that, fit that where they're really interested in looking into the future. So when you think about forward thinking, one of the ways we describe it in this book is it's like mental time travel. And you're trying to like see out three, five, 10 years. And given all of the trends, things that are going on with technologies and with customers, you've got the two sides of in terms of customer tastes and the way trends are changing around what people are wanting and the technologies. It's really looking out five, 10, 15 years and trying to mentally time travel um, to sort of see what might the world look like in 5, 10, 15 years? What will people really want? And how could I build something that might be valuable, you know, in advance of that? And what we learned is that um, forward thinkers, they uh, engage in this mental time travel, so they take time to think about it. But before they do that, they will spend a lot of time exploring and reading about all the new technologies that are coming about and um and they'll also read as much as they can about customer trends or they'll they'll get out and talk to people and then they step back and spend time really trying to absorb and think about it um, and then they do it with others uh, bill gates was well known for doing this with his think week sometimes he do it for one week two weeks every year he would just step back and he would uh sort of read everything he could about you know new technologies and what's going on with customers and then he'd often write a memo and he wrote a famous memo about the internet the tidal wave of the internet about 1995 um sort of really before it was taking off um he also i just heard him the other night was talking about something he wrote about pandemics and how we needed to be prepared for pandemics and this was 2016 15 16 and uh, the things steps we need to take so uh, it's, it's really spending time uh, learning about new technologies, new emerging uh, companies as well, and sort of the new business models that are being introduced by new companies. So looking at a variety of new company lists, um, new technologies, and then also reading about customer trends. Those are ways that you can um, really um, see opportunity that you might not otherwise and look, look to the future. Do you read a lot of uh, magazines like me? I like reading Inc., Fast Company. My favorite's the Harvard Business Review. Are, are these guys yeah. typically readers? And, are you, are, and, and what do you advise reading? So uh, these folks tend to be voracious readers. And in the business area, they do tend to read, um, you know, Fast Company, Wired, Inc., you know, stuff, especially things that are coming out that are kind of new. Um, but so they're, they're also likely to read new books um, that, that come out related to technology or organizations like anything new, like on artificial intelligence. Um, and I've heard Satya Nadella at Microsoft, uh, you know, he reads like a couple of books a week. Um, Indra Nui said she was a voracious reader. I mean, certainly it's true of, of Gates and Bezos. Uh, these guys, these folks all 
um, it's just a regular part of their their lifestyle is to read as much as possible to be up to date on new technologies and trends. That's hard to get young people to really understand how important that reading aspect is because they're of a generation where they're either listening to podcasts or they're listening to audio books, which is not bad to go do. And that's still very good, but they're not big readers. But all the CEOs I've ever interviewed, they were all, as you say, voracious readers and big yeah. on biographies, big on new technologies that were coming out, even if it wasn't in their field, they felt like that might spur some creativity, which one of the things right. I was in interested to know is, what do creative problem solvers do? So it's, uh, it's one thing to generate a creative idea. It's another thing to figure out how do we solve the problems related to that particular idea. So um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Regeneron is a, it's a biotech company and uh, uh, George Yankopoulos is the chief science officer and president, uh, Len Schlafer's CEO. And they looked at the timeline um, that it typically takes to bring a new drug to market. Whoops. I'm sure he'll be right back on again. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. My internet, there's so many people on the internet these days with homeschooling <laughs> that our internet services is not what it was. So um, anyway, I was talking about Regeneron and the, the problem they were trying to solve was how do we go from a product development cycle and all of the trials that take um, seven to eight years and then you've got development, you're like eight to 10 years before an idea gets to where you actually can like test on humans. And they realized that one of the big problems was that you have a three to four year time period where you're maybe testing with animals and you're not sure if it's gonna work on humans. And you might waste all of that time testing on animals um, and it, it won't work on humans. But it's like, so how do we shorten that time period? Well, you have to test on animals. so. The idea that was generated was, well, how could we make sure that the animals behave more like humans so that we shorten that time uh, frame of testing, but also we increase the probability that it will work on humans. And so they developed a technology like how can we get mice um, Whoops. Whoops, sorry, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, so I'll keep going while it pulls us back. How do we get to behave more like humans? And uh, they figured out a way to, um, to basically transfer some like uh, the genomes, the, the basics of sort of human structure um, to the mice to create sort of humanized mice so that they would actually more likely behave like humans in response to the different drug therapies they were trying. So you, if a, a creative problem solver, first you identify the big barriers to achieving the breakthrough and you identify that constraint. And then you get down to the physics of what is causing that constraint 
And then they're really good at bringing in uh, a variety of people with different expertise, different points of view, figure out how do we um, overcome that particular barrier that is preventing us from achieving a breakthrough. So it's a, 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 a good creative problem solver starts by figuring out what are the big barriers to preventing us to get to where we need to be? And then um, what are the things causing that? What are the root causes of that barrier? And then bringing in a, a team to address those root causes. So one of the things you also talk about in the book I thought was quite interesting, and the book is a terrific read, uh, was cognitive flexibility. What is that? So it's interesting. Um, what we have learned about people who are more creative is that they're more likely to be actually at IDEO, the innovation design firm, they've, they've called them being T-shaped individuals, meaning they have an area of deep expertise, but then they also have a number of areas of broad expertise. And their flexi cognitive flexibility means you're very open to new and different ways of doing things. Sometimes we become I-shaped, which means we become really this deep, deep expert in one area. And that means we get a hammer and we want to apply it to everything. And we don't have the flexibility to learn, to be willing to learn in new areas and realize we, there's a good likelihood that I'm wrong or that there's another perspective that, you know, will, will solve this problem. And so it's someone who's cognitively flexible is constantly asking themselves, why am I wrong? What makes this approach incorrect? What might be another approach? Who else should I talk to that might give me uh, you know, a better idea about how we could make this work? And some of us are just better at being open to new experience and ideas and searching and being willing to um, really challenge our own biases, our own cognitive biases about why we, you know, we think we're right, but we need to be, um, you know, I think people with cognitive flexibility, constantly challenging yourself and others um, as you pursue what you hope is, will be the like optimal approach to solving a problem. So what is the difference between natural abilities, natural intelligence, personality traits and skills? You talk a lot about that in the book. Yeah, I think that's confusing for, um, for all of us. So um, I'm going to put intelligence, what we think of natural intelligence, and abilities in one bucket. And this is sort of what you come with in terms of, you know, sort of your genetics. And Howard Gardner, uh, an uh, educational psychologist at Harvard, has written a book called The Theory of Multiple Intelligences and is one of the leading uh, researchers in the area of natural intelligences that we have, or natural intelligence. So one would be general intelligence. We all sort of know about IQ, but that's only one type of intelligence. You know, the ability to memorize facts and figures, read quickly, solve problems. But there's also, there's emotional intelligence, which is the ability to read others' uh, social cues, emotional cues. And in fact, there's some research that suggests career and life success is more predicated on emotional intelligence than general intelligence. We also see that there's creative intelligence in the sense that some are more divergent thinkers and some are more convergent thinkers. Um, so some people are, you know, sort of more out of the box in terms of ideas. There's visual spatial intelligence, the ability to see things in 3D. So these are 
sort of natural abilities that maybe we have that some of us are just stronger in some of these areas than others. And another one would be linguistic intelligence. So there are at least eight or nine of these types of intelligence and more will probably be discovered. These are natural abilities. You can get better to some extent, but some of us are just simply, you know, we're, we're blessed maybe with a greater ability at linguistic intelligence. Now, in terms of building a skill, can I get better at my linguistic skills and my ability to talk and persuade others through practice? Absolutely. So you take that raw material and then you put that with the practice and that's how you build skills. Someone might have natural linguistic ability, but they really don't put themselves in, in opportunities, places to practice that skill. Um, or they might have creative intelligence, the ability to think divergently, but they don't really, again, spend time or put themselves in and practice and use that. So skill develops through practice. And so it's the practice use uh, of a, a, a skill or a, a basic ability becomes the skill. And then we have personality traits, which are actually different than in skills in some ways, but personality traits are, you know, you're more outgoing or you're more introverted. You're more um, open to new experience or you're more conservative. You're highly conscientious. You're very organized and orderly or you're much more relaxed. And those are things we think of as being personality traits. So we have, uh, you know, areas of intelligence and abilities that are different from the skills that we then can derive off of our intelligence and abilities and skills that we derive off of our personality. And we have personality, and that also tends to be relatively fixed, like, um, like uh, in the, the intelligence or abilities uh, construct. So let's talk about companies. It seems to me that being labeled an innovator like Edison, Ford, Bezos, Gates, Musk, increase the value of everything they touch. Uh, what is the financial yeah. impact to a company with such a leader at the top? So um, what you're highlighting is as they, uh, as, a, as a Bezos or a Musk becomes known by having a track record of success, it builds their reputation for innovation, which is one of the components of innovation capital. So we talked about innovation capital is a big part of it. It's like political capital in the sense that with political capital, you're able to persuade others to pursue your agenda in the political realm. With innovation capital, you're able to persuade others to pursue your agenda in the business realm. And as you build a track record for success with a company, a startup, especially if you're doing a startup where you're doing innovative new things, that helps build your track record for innovation. So I think the first step to building innovation capital is you've got to be a founder of something. It doesn't have to be a company. It could be an initiative in your organization. But what you see um, is that those people who are founders of an organization that's doing something innovative are the most likely to start to build this reputation for innovation as an innovative leader. So being part of an innovative team, uh, if you can go look for startups in Silicon Valley or other places, they're doing something innovative and you can try and join that team and be part of that team. That really helps start to build your reputation for innovation. And then once you build it, then you, you leverage it to new and different domains. So 
you know, Elon Musk over time, he now has, I think, 25 million Twitter followers. If he wants to get an idea out there, he can do it very quickly. The, the Hyperloop is an example. So nobody had really heard of Hyperloop before Elon Musk mentioned this idea of Hyperloop technology, which could take this sort of tube that would be transported, you know, underground uh, from, you know, LA to San Francisco. And you use that same uh, sort of technology that they use at uh, banks where you're pushing that little uh, canister with the tube up to uh, the towers. So, can you still hear me? Uh, please, everybody, mute. And we lost our speaker. So, if you all could please mute your phones. I'm sure Jeff will be back in a second. Can you hear me now, Mark? Yep, we're all good. Okay. So um, anyway, the idea was, you know, there's a lot of traffic congestion. It's hard to get from San Francisco to LA. So Musk just mentions this technology he'd read a little bit about, this Hyperloop technology. And then there's an explosion of coverage about it. And in fact, uh, enough that it ends up leading to the formation of a couple of different companies that pursue this idea because he's able to draw attention to it. So one of the things these leaders do is they use their platform to bring attention to the, the initiatives, the ideas, the things they care about. And, um, and they're very aggressive about doing that through blogs and articles, and videos. And so I think for most of us, we have to think about being our own brand manager. And we have to think about how do I manage my brand and how do I get my ideas out there? Um, and uh, we're finding that people who do that well are much better at uh, rising up through the organization and they're able to bring resources to their projects. Should you be hiring a publicist? I mean, it seems like these guys all have great publicists. Like, would anybody even know if they didn't have that? I mean, if, when you try to grow anything organically and try to add a lot of people onto your LinkedIn list or your Twitter or whatever, it seems that that's a hard way to go. But if you've got a great publicist and you have a great story to tell, that's a much quicker way to add people. Do all these folks have great publicists working for them and, and did from the beginning? Um, I would say most did not in the beginning. So um, at some point you, you think about maybe you can afford a, a, a publicist. And there are some aggressive people who realize that might be the way to, to create a breakthrough is to get someone who really knows how to do this, right? An expert. Um, and, and you want experts to be part of your social network. Um, I think that uh, for the typical person, though, you know, you are starting by, um, by uh, uh, you know, writing, you know, blogs or articles um, to get known. Try and be on a, a contributor at, you know, Forbes or, you know, uh, Fast Company or one of these you might try and be a contributor because you, you write some, you know, hopefully interesting blog ideas and they, they like it. Um, and you, or you, you know, you create some videos around some uh, ideas that you've developed that you put out there. So I think um, it's great if you can get true experts, a publicist, 
to help you to get the word out. But I think for most of us, uh, it happens more sort of step-by-step step, incrementally. I'll mention a guy that we talk about in the book. His name is David Bradford. David uh, told me he has uh, 30,000 people in his LinkedIn list. And he said he, the reason he knows there's 30,000, they, um, of course, they report that. But apparently, you max out at 30,000 is what he told me. So he now has to delete people to add people. And I don't know if they've changed that, but he's been doing this over 30 years. And David says his ability to network and bring, you know, get ideas from this network of 30,000 people, he says he's one, one direct connection away. Those 30,000 people can get him to about 5 million people. And um, he's been doing this over time. Um, it helped him secure the job as a CEO um, at a, a, a startup called Fusion IO. It became a unicorn. He actually recruited um, Steve Wozniak to be the chief science officer. And he had never, he actually met Wozniak uh, at a conference Wozniak was speaking at. And he just uh, sat up on the front row and happened to meet his uh, Wozniak's assistant and got introduced and, and uh, followed up with conversations about his technology and was able to convince Wozniak to come on as advisor and then as the chief science officer. He argues just that the turtle, the tortoise approach of adding people every day to his LinkedIn group, spending an hour or two a day networking has paid huge dividends. And now if he needs, uh, he's been the CEO of HireVue, another company, and now the Fluent World. If he needs uh, resources, people, uh, financial resources, he goes to that big network and he is very successful at bringing resources to his projects. One of the things I thought was interesting in your book is when people think of innovators, they think of uh, the Wright brothers and Edison and Musk and, and so forth, but you don't have to create a product to be considered an innovator, right? So who, who would you, yeah. who you throw out there as examples of people who are great innovators? Uh, so um, I think actually Elon Musk, uh, is someone who has done a really good job of, uh, of pursuing ideas. I think he is quite innovative, but Tesla had been started before he joined. But I was thinking about innovators who haven't created a product, because you mentioned your books oh. and folks who have been innovators, but they've been innovative and maybe changing things, processes. I mean, we have somebody in the beginning, yeah. Butler, who talked in the beginning, and that's what he does is he helps companies uh, change processes in their businesses to make them much more efficient. So what other types of innovators are there? Got it. Yeah. So if you think about, um, I think Satya Nadella hasn't necessarily been a product innovator, but he has been a really a, a culture innovator at Microsoft, uh, where he has been able to, in that company, help create a much more team orientation, collaboration to pursuing innovative ideas, both inside the company and outside working with other firms where others weren't doing that. Um, he has tried to, to figure out how, to, how do we bring uh, the right teams together in terms of technologies and processes to do new things at Microsoft. So Satya Nadella, you know, sort of emerged through the ranks at Microsoft. Um, and I wouldn't say he's a real a product innovator, but I think the real innovation that he's brought to Microsoft is really around the culture and collaboration that he's created at that organization that has been fostered 
uh, you know, more innovation throughout the firm? I think they went through a very dark winter under Steve Ballmer. I mean, I remember when I was at Wharton and students of mine who were at Microsoft wished they had never gone there because they said that they didn't feel like that was an innovative, creative environment. And the people who were yeah. Steve Jobs, because he was still alive when I was at Wharton, um, thought it was the greatest experience that they ever had. Now, under this new guy at, at Microsoft, and I guess he's been in two years, it's changed the whole, how people view Microsoft. They're now created, considered a creative company again. Yeah, I, he really deserves credit as being the architect of a new, like I say, a new culture, new processes for collaboration, both inside and outside. But he didn't go to Harvard um, either, I, right? He didn't go to an elite school either. No, in fact, yeah, I think he, he got his computer science degree at Wisconsin, a uh, good school, but not considered necessarily an elite school. But uh, interestingly enough, he talks about, we, we talked about forward thinking earlier, about joining Microsoft in the early 1990s. And he said the big businesses at the time were Microsoft Office and Microsoft Operating System. It was consumer. And those are the businesses people wanted to be in because that's where all the money was. He'd actually been doing some reading about, you know, he knew about the internet, he knew about artificial intelligence, and he was really interested in machine learning and, and, and artificial intelligence and could see that more things were going to be delivered through the internet in the future. And so he joined the server business. And I think he tried to develop expertise in these areas that he thought would be important at Microsoft in the future, which is delivering service over this thing called the internet. And uh, he developed expertise over time and became the head of their sort of uh, cloud business. And then uh, he was able to, so he became the, uh, the head of their cloud business and then leveraged that to become uh, sort of known as someone who would be a good candidate for the CEO job. Can you be considered innovative if you're not starting from something from scratch and you're improving something? Yeah. Do you have any examples? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, um, I'd mentioned Indra Nooyi at PepsiCo. So she helped uh, uh, really Pepsi, who was already a company that was good at looking at customers and customer trends, right? That's, they're a consumer products company. So they're studying consumers all the time. But um, she was able to say, we need to get even better at that. And, um, and I think uh, was then successful at forming what she, they call the megatrends group at PepsiCo, where they brought folks together with different backgrounds to do an even better job of forward thinking for the company. And looking at the, you know, the trends on the consumer side and the technology side and what was going on with sustainability. And so she, I think this is an example of maybe something a little more of an incremental innovation, but uh, really took the company was, was already pretty good at, uh, at uh, sort of, you know, analyzing and understanding trends and what was changing, but really helped the company become much better because of the creation formation of the megatrends group. Uh, 
Can you give us an example of someone who encompasses all of these skills? Is there any entrepreneur, business leader that you look at and say, man, for some reason, they stopped the assembly line and gave this person kind of everything? Or tell us like the um, entrepreneur or business leader you're like most impressed with and why. Um, you know, I would say, um, as I think back on the interviews that I've done over the years with leaders, I've had a chance to interview Jeff Bezos on two occasions. One. Whoop, hold on one second. So, sorry. So I've said I've had a chance to interview Jeff Bezos on two occasions. One was back about 2007, 2008, relatively early on in their time period at, uh, you know, at Amazon. And then, and then one uh, uh, just uh, a year and a half ago for innovation capital for this book. And I think um, Bezos has really done a good job at all three components of building in his innovation capital. He, um, he grew up, uh, he describes actually growing up uh, and spending a lot of time um, on his grandpa's farm as a youngster. And his grandpa didn't have uh, often the, the financial resources to fix, th fix things on the farm. Things would break, they need to do a fence. And he said, I learned from my grandpa how to really be a do-it-yourselfer. Like we, we got in and we'd read manuals about how to fix whatever the, the tractor or how to build the fence or how to do things. And he, he was really good at, at being comfortable building new skills to solve problems. And, and I think at Amazon over time, one of the things that impresses me about Amazon, perhaps more than any other company, is a willingness to build new skill sets. So, for example, when they decided to build the Kindle, this was, you know, they were a retailer at the time. They sold books. They sold other things online. They didn't do software embedded devices. Jeff Wilkie, who is the CEO of retail, said at the time, he said, I argued to the board and to Jeff, this was a bad idea. We don't know how to do software embedded devices. It will create um, a lot of, it will require a lot of resources, time, we may not be successful. We're going to be going up against Apple and Samsung and these other companies that are really good at this. Um, we should not try to do this ourselves. And he said, uh, Jeff Bezos, he listened to all the arguments. And he, uh, he said, Bezos said, look, if we can learn how to do this, essentially we'll create a platform to be able to do a lot of new things for our company. And we might not succeed. And I acknowledge that there are those risks. But I think we... I think if we don't try, we will lose out on a platform for, for growth for the company, essentially. And so uh, they went ahead and made that investment, and they were successful with Kimble, the, the Kindle. They were not successful with the Fire Phone, which cost them reportedly up to a billion dollars. They've been successful with the, X, the Echo, the, M, the Alexa. So it has opened up a lot of um, value for the company by being willing to develop that new skill set. They were willing to do it with Amazon Web Services. When, again, it was not a retail business, it was very different, he was willing to build new skills. So I think Bezos is really good at creative problem solving and looking to the, the customer and what customers want and working backwards. They have this 
process called working backwards that we describe in um, in the book. And uh, so I, I'm really impressed with that. I think he's also uh, quite good with people. He's been able to build a management team that's been fairly stable. He's good at, at, at networking. And um, so I think he's good at bringing resources to the company as he needs to. And I think he's also done a pretty good job of, of really building his personal reputation as a good innovative leader. Um, of course, he has that, you know, the publicist and, and good folks to help him with all of that. But I think, um, you know, of course, he, uh, while he, he had the debacle, I think you could say around his sort of his personal life, those issues, um, I think he tried to move on from that. And I think he, uh, you know, he really today has built an organization that continues to grow, build new skills and innovate. And, uh, and so I think, uh, I think he's probably, if I was going to point to maybe one leader with a very well-rounded skill set uh, for around innovation capital, he, he'd, he'd maybe be at the, t at the top of the list and he was number one on our first most innovative leaders list. Well, I want to thank you for coming on today. And uh, if you do talk to Jeff Bezos, ask him to stop his Alexa from turning on my TV at 2 a.m. For some reason, that keeps turning on my TV every once in a while. And I guess maybe it just wants to watch something while I'm asleep. But you need to talk to Jeff about that one for sure. Okay. Uh, again, thank you all of you for coming today. And on Monday at 5 p.m., uh, we have Tim Draper, who is a world-famous venture capitalist uh, billionaire who's, found, who's invested in many of the greatest companies that we've heard of. So we only have... Uh, 200 tickets for that. And amazingly, in the first, this morning, we already have 125 of those tickets taken. So I hope all of you have a great weekend. And thank you again. And Jeff, it was such a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye.